You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Good morning, good morning. Good to see you guys here in this room. It's good to see you guys online. Welcome, glad you're here. I want to start out this morning by reading a quick story from a guy named Greg Coles. Here's his story. It was the evening of my 25th birthday, he writes. A month or so after I had finally worked up the courage to come out to my pastor. We were in the midst of a Sunday night prayer meeting, 30-odd people gathered in the back corner of a church's worship hall. The pastor had just given an invitation for people to share anything weighing on their hearts before we broke into small groups for prayer. Everyone else had something to share, had spoken from the comfort of their seats, but she stood. It seemed an inauspicious omen. I think we need to pray for our nation, she said, as the people around her murmured their agreement. And I held my breath, waiting for the other shoe to drop. She went on. She told us how she was on a mission to spread the truth about the disgusting gay agenda. She told us how homosexuals were forcing schools to teach that their behavior was normal, even though the Bible called it an abomination. She told us to pray for the upcoming Supreme Court vote on so-called gay marriage, that the gays would be defeated. Words like love and Christ were sprinkled in among the others, giving everything she said a decidedly Christian flavor. And perhaps she really meant those words. Perhaps she truly believed that the fire in her voice and the passion of her convictions were the best way of communicating love to a world around her. But what I heard in her words and what I saw in her eyes felt nothing like love. I sat perfectly still, eyes fixed on a distant nothing, willing my body to relax, willing my hands to not be fists. She wasn't talking about me, at least she didn't think she was talking about me, but she was talking about me. I was the unnatural thing, the disgusting thing the thing that made her hands shake and her lips curl. It wasn't her near condemnation of me that troubled me the most. It was the knowledge that so many people, breathing, hurting, bleeding, LGBTQ individuals, so much like me, really did stand on the receiving end of her words because they didn't know Christ yet or because they had understood him differently or because they hadn't yet accepted his dangerous invitation to give up everything for the sake of the cross. The only message they may ever hear from this woman was a message of revulsion. They might see in her, they might think they saw, the closest to proclamation of Christ they had ever known. The Christ who embraced outcast and scribbled in the sand and refused to throw stones, her words seemed to leave no room for him. When she talked about Christ, I pictured a man too busy turning over tables to stoop and befriend the marginalized. As she spoke, My heart pounded, but my face was like a stone. When she finished, she sat down with a deep sigh. Everyone was silent. I disciplined myself not to breathe any louder than the rest of them. We waited in silence that was almost like a prayer. 
When we broke into groups, I slipped away to use the bathroom, a socially acceptable way to avoid joining a prayer group. I got a drink of water, refilled my water bottle, even though it was already two-thirds full. I wandered the length of the hallway, slipped into a side closet full of music equipment, and lay flat on the floor in the darkness. The closet. I smirked at the irony of the location. But even if I had been in the mood to laugh at my own joke, there was no one to share it with me. Happy birthday to me, I sang under my breath. Happy birthday to me. Well, good morning. Welcome. Glad that you're here. This is the second week of our six-week teaching series called Holy Sexuality. And if this is your first week at North Canton Chapel, you probably feel like you just jumped onto a moving freight train. And that's understandable, and that's okay. Um, I want to throw the car in reverse a bit and do a bit of context just so you know where you are. You can head to ncchapel.com slash sermons and catch last week's message, which is kind of the foundation for what's coming in the next five weeks. Last week, we set four ground rules for how we're going to talk about sexuality as a church. How do you have this conversation? We all talked about three ways where the church has gotten this conversation terribly wrong in recent years. And then we concluded last week with talking about God's design for sexuality from Genesis 1 and 2, Ephesians 5, and Revelation 19. But before we go any further, I read this last week. I just think it's probably good to share it again in case you missed it. Um, I shamelessly stole this phrase from Lori Krieg, who will be with us next week. Clarity is kindness, and because I want to be kind to you, I also want to be clear. Here's where we stand as a church. I think this is hopefully going to be helpful. Here in North Kent Chapel, we believe that marriage is given by God to be an exclusive, lifelong covenantal union between one man and one woman. And that God intends that all sexual intimacy to be enjoyed exclusively within this marriage covenant, and that any inward cultivation or outward expression of sexual desire apart from that is against his good and gracious will. But here's what I notice. I notice a lot of Christians want to hide behind a statement like that. They go, man, I just put the statement out there, then here, just read the thing. Many Christians would rather the conversation around sexuality not exist. We prefer a version of Christianity that does not require tension, and I think that that's the problem. Because we've not acknowledged, welcomed, or lived in the tension, we have not developed the muscle to handle the tension well. The task that falls to thoughtful Christians in 2022 is absolutely a challenging task, but it is one for which we are equipped if we are courageous and compassionate enough to take it up. So where do we start? That's today. This morning, I want to give you a starting point, right? So if you're ready to engage your world in the tension between courage and compassion, this morning is for you. Three parts to our morning. First, we're going to go to John 8. So you can get there. We'll get there in just a second. John chapter 8 is this wonderful scene about sin and self-righteousness. And then we're going to walk through what is sexual brokenness? What does this even mean? And then I'm going to give you six reasons why you need to acknowledge your own sexual brokenness, as do I. Now, I know, I know right now, because we've had conversations even this week, I know some of you are like, feeling this like unavoidable, irresistible urge, like, I got to get some questions answered. Is being gay a sin? Like, can somebody be gay and still follow Jesus? Like, were people created this way? 
All those questions are great questions, but I'm going to ask you to hold on to them for a little bit because I think that we have to get to something first, much more important than the answers to those questions. Have you ever noticed Jesus spends a lot of time around the sexually broken? And I think if we want to call ourselves Christians, if we really want that label, Christians, not just people who go to church, if we really want to have the label Christian, We've got to align ourselves with how he responded, what he did, how he taught, and how he loved. And so here's the scene in John 8. Jesus has just landed in Galilee, and since he got into town, he's already kicking up dust. He started out by teaching in the temple, which for this untrained, unmentored, untaught carpenter son named Jesus, that was as just as much presumptuous as it was dangerous for him. It's holiday time, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is kind of like their version of our Thanksgiving Families in town, lots of food, everybody's staying up late, enjoying the party. And this upstart carpenter's son, who never had any training, never went to school, never mentored by an older, wiser rabbi, stands up in the middle of the temple at the height of the feast, in front of a packed crowd, and he starts teaching again. John even tells us in his gospel that the religious leaders turned to each other and said, we've never heard anybody teach like this guy before. Just so you know, they didn't mean that in a complimentary way. <laughs> Early the next morning, Jesus enters the temple for a third time, and the religious leaders gather in the shadows with furrowed brows, lowered voices. Jesus' disciples even talked to each other in whispered tones. There's tension in the air, and that sets the stage for what happens next. John chapter 8, verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees, we'll get to them in just a second, brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses has commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This is a horrifying scene, isn't it? Could you imagine if our churches were like this? Mm. Here's what's going on. The scribes and the Pharisees, these guys are like the theological pretty boys. They got everything together. They're like a car with a brand new set of tires, fresh coat of paint, and a salvage title. Right? They're that house that you look at online and it's got like the perfect siding, and then you get in there and you're like mold in the basement. <laughs> uh, really great landscaping, but a cracked foundation. These guys are professional religious fakes. You know the type, don't you? And they've heard Jesus teaching, and they've got to do something. And so they scour the town, turning over rocks, until they find someone whose version of sexual sin is particularly offensive to them. A woman with a very public past. A known sexual sinner. So they bring her to Jesus. And don't miss this. She's not on trial here. Who's on trial? Jesus is on trial. And so with the question hanging out there, Jesus, what do you say about this? Jesus does what Jesus loves to do. He grabs the spotlight that they intended to shine on her, and he just goes, and he shines it right back on them. Take a look in verse 7. As they continue to ask him, which I love that, because the implication is like he wasn't responding at first. Come on, say something, Jesus. As they continue to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. As if to say, oh really? You guys want to talk about sin? 
Good, let's go there. Let's talk about your cracked foundation. Let's talk about the mold in your basement. Let's talk about your salvage title hiding behind your perfect name. You want to go there? No? Oh. And his quasi-invitation, that's really an accusation, just kind of hangs there as if to say, is anybody not broken? Verse 9. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. You can almost see it, can't you? This woman standing in the middle of a crowd, her head bowed in shame, her eyes barely able to raise up and see the sinless Son of God. The sounds of turning sandals, grinding and shifting the dirt as they turned to walk away. The muffled sound of rocks hitting the ground. A few at first, and then a few more, and then everybody, and then silence. Verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, he's got two questions. First one, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Two questions. The first one's almost comical, right? It's kind of needless. Where are they? Oh, Jesus. I mean, they just, <laughs> just walked away. But the second one is deeply personal, and it rises just below the surface of her emotions. You've heard me say this way before, that Jesus never asks a question because he doesn't know the answer. Jesus asks a question because he wants us to see something that we couldn't see otherwise. And so what's her answer? Has no one condemned you? And she says in verse 11, no one, Lord. Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So a couple questions, just to sort of get us started. First, what do we see in this text? We've got to see this thing rightly. And then second thing, why is this text so important for our understanding of sexuality? And then what are we supposed to do about this? So what do we see here? This isn't that hard. First, and most glaringly, we see a woman put in the middle of a crowd, a known sexual sinner. We see the clarity of sin. Sin's a real thing. But then, by contrast, juxtaposed, we see the sinless Son of God. We see Jesus, who never sinned. And going, what's he doing here with her? Huh? But then, the third thing we see in this scene, just to add drama to the whole bit, is the crowd. A lot of them, presumably, holding stones in their hand, ready to pounce. You get the sense, don't you, that we're walking into a trap that's already been set. Well, why is this scene so important? The scene is so important for our understanding of sexuality because of the question that's lurking under the surface tension. And here it is. What is Jesus' response to sexual sin? What's he going to do? And then by extension, if you're a Christian, you're going to do what Jesus does. What's our response to sexual sin? This isn't some abstract thought experiment. This isn't just academic, right? This is a blueprint for where to start for when it comes to understanding sexual sin. This scene is so important because Jesus invites us to do something that most of us are not very good at. And I believe it's the key for unlocking this entire conversation, leading with grace over judgment. Hmm. So what are we supposed to do with this? And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning, about a half hour together. I think what we do with this text reveals our heart. I think how we respond to this text 
reveals what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about others, what we believe about God, and what we ultimately believe about the gospel. Here's what I mean. When I read this text, like I've got my response is this. Who am I in this scene? Who are you? Who am I in this whole scene? Can I acknowledge the fact that I am sexually broken? Are you even open to that idea? Or do I get defensive? Like, well, no, I'm not. Who do you think you are? Don't talk to me about that. Or do I get dismissive? Like, ah, I just don't even want to talk about this. Or do I get comparative? That's the most common one. Well, I may be sexually broken, but I'm not as bad as those people. Mm -hmm. And how you're responding right now in this moment is incredibly important. Pay attention to what's happening in your head and in your heart. We've been given this text, brought to this scene, because there's something that we need to get. We are all sexually broken people. Genesis 1 and 2 are great. So is Revelation 19. But Genesis 3, and the whole mess in between, what a terrible doozy. <laughs> Sin. We're all steeped in it, every one of us, and you can't outrun it, you can't push it down, you can't deny that it's there. We've been given this text to show that we are all sexually broken. And let me be candid, I don't know if you buy that yet. I'm serious. I don't know if you believe me when I say that. I think some of you might go, well, I mean, sexually perfect, no. But sexually broken, I don't know. I don't think so. Until we see that we are both the woman in the crowd and the ones holding stones, we will miss the point of this text. Sometimes we're in the crowd, right? Sometimes we're ready to lob stones at people whose sin we find particularly detestable. Sometimes we're the woman in the crowd, powerless to help ourselves. All times we are in need of a Savior to stand up, step up, and deliver us from death. Here we go. In her book, Rethinking Sexuality, clinical psychologist and author, Dr. Julie Slattery, says this. I think this is a great idea. Everyone's sexually broken? This might be a difficult statement to swallow, primarily because we typically define sexual brokenness as the presence of symptoms. Watch this such as porn use, same-sex attraction, or triggers from sexual trauma. In my experience, most Christians don't think they need help in the area of sexuality. She continues, the church often defines sexual health as the absence of symptoms. We send men and women to get fixed in their respective groups of brokenness instead of together grieving how drastically Satan has vandalized our collective understanding of holy sexuality. And then now get this one. Sexual brokenness is not simply the presence of symptoms. And you can't tell it from the outside in. It's not how that works. Sexual brokenness is anything that keeps us from experiencing sexuality as the gift and metaphor of covenant love. Stay there for a second because it's a great definition. Anything that keeps us from experiencing sexuality as the gift, which means it's given by God on his terms. We talked about that last week. It's a man and a woman for life. It's a gift from God. But then also the metaphor is this beautiful thing that images Christ in the church. And all of us have roadblocks on our way to actually resting in that. 
And I think our, will, our unwillingness to see ourselves rightly is actually preventing us from seeing our world compassionately. And so in the time left, I want to ask you to do the hard thing and to do the brave thing. I want to invite you to see your own brokenness as the doorway through which we must pass. I want to give us six reasons why we need to acknowledge sexual brokenness, and I offer these as a starting point. And this is for those of you who are going, okay, not sure where you're going. Trust me. Just hear me out, please. Reason number one why we need to acknowledge our sexual brokenness. Acknowledging sexual brokenness helps us see sin rightly. Now, here's the thing. This scene in John 8 and a good many others have been used as a defense of moral relativism, right? As if to say, well, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Who are you to say what's right and wrong, right? There is no right. There is no wrong. Just love people. But curious thing, that's not what Jesus does here. You catch that? He doesn't minimize sin. He doesn't go, well, let's just like, forget this thing ever happened. Sweep it under the rug. He doesn't do that. He doesn't trivialize it, say, well, I mean, come on, it's really no big deal. He doesn't relativize it, saying, well, who am I to say what's right and wrong? He doesn't peripheralize it, say, like, well, just focus on what's important. So if he doesn't minimize, trivialize, relativize, or peripheralize, what does Jesus do to sin here? He normalizes it. He pushes the conversation right out in the middle of the square as if to say, hey, hey, let's talk. Can we talk about sin? Can we talk about that? He levels the playing field. He isn't saying, hey, look, she's okay, you're okay. If anything, it's the polar opposite. Nobody's okay. <laughs> Thanks for the encouraging words, Jesus, right? No, you're all messed up. But there's a twist in this, as there always is with Jesus. The sin in her life is no different than the sin that's in your life. The brokenness in her is no more severe than the brokenness that's in you. Don't you dare judge her just because she happens to sin differently than you do. And that's the idea that so offended the religious leaders. Because these guys are here thinking, yeah, we may be sinners, but not like her. Look at her. Isn't she disgusting? Her sin is out there, and it's nauseating to us. Everybody knows her. She can't hide it. And that's why we brought her here to you, Jesus. Because if you are who you say you are, you're supposed to call her out for who she is, let shame do its work, and then let us blast her. And Jesus is beautiful, ever-needed, timeless, inarguable, silence-inducing corrective point is don't fall into the trap of thinking that you can claim any advantage just because your version of sin is a little more socially permissible than hers is. Bruce Miller, um, whose book, Leading a Church in a Time of Sexual Questioning, has been a great resource for our elder board, our staff, and for me personally in these days. Here's what he says. It's easy to demonize the other, the one you see as your opponent on the side you are fighting against. Gay people can be characterized, or rather caricatured, as abominations, the worst of sinners. Often a person in this frame of mind is determined to convey how homosexuality is a despicable sin, perhaps the worst imaginable sin. Here's his gospel corrective. We are all sinners in need of the grace of God. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're pushing back and you're going, whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on. Jesus talked about sin here. <laughs> Don't forget that. It's right there. Go and sin no more. Yes, 
Jesus talked about sin. Yes, he said, go and sin no more. Yes, a life of unrepentant sexual sin is not God's design for you. But when does he bring it up? After that she knows that Jesus is unquestionably for her. Do those you want so desperately to correct know that you are unquestionably for them first? One commentator summarizes the scene like this. Meeting a man who is interested in saving rather than exploiting and in forgiving rather than condemning must have been a new experience for her. Jesus' attitude provided both the motivation and the assurance she needed. Interested in saving and forgiving, not exploiting and condemning. Makes me ask, which side am I more interested in? And more importantly, why am I more interested in that side? This side, saving and forgiving, has to do with somebody else's gospel, salvation, their image of Jesus. This one has to do with my self-protection and preservation. What kind of church do we want? We want a table that welcomes sinners? Or do we want a wall that keeps them out? Because you're already here, and so am I. Speaking of church, reason number two, we need to acknowledge our sexual brokenness. Acknowledging sexual brokenness keeps church real. Keeps church real. Writing about what happens when, Christian, or when sexual sin is processed in a healthy way, Caleb Kaltenbach, who wrote Messy Grace, subtitle, How a Pastor with Gay Parents Learned to Love Others Without Sacrificing Conviction. If that doesn't make you want to hop on Amazon and buy the book, here's what he says. The church should be the first place someone would go for conversations like these, yet for many it's the last place. Why in the world would anyone go to a group of people who make them feel guilty and worse for what they are struggling with Instead of going to church, they will go to other places to share their struggles and feelings. And a lot of those places are not good. And then he casts a vision for what these kind of churches can become. He says this, churches where you can show up and discover an expectation that you're just as messed up as the next person. You can be honest about your struggles and your past because it's in the DNA of these churches for people to be real. Believers like this won't expect you to be perfect. They will give you room to work out the struggles you have between you and God. They don't view themselves as God's moral security team, but instead are more than happy to walk alongside you on the journey. Do you like that picture? I do. Kind of freaks you out, though, doesn't it? Yeah, me too. But that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. Where the conversation around like sin and salvation is so normal and grace is maximized. And I know some of you just went to Romans 6 where you went to Paul and he goes, well, shall we sin so grace may abound? I'm with Paul. May it never be. I just don't want a place where we have to hide. I imagine a day where this conversation is so common it's boring. Like what's your version of sexual sin? Yeah, here's mine. Let's pray together. Isn't Jesus great? Instead, what do we do? We hold everything so close to the chest and so tightly to the chest that we're actually choking our heart. If Christianity is just one beggar showing another beggar where to get free bread, some of you have heard that definition, why are we so busy trying to convince other people that we're not hungry anymore, that we're not needful anymore, that we got it all figured out? I'm worried 
genuinely, that our pride is unintentionally creating a Christian culture where we're just learning to lie really well. And I know that sounds cynical, but ask yourself this question. Do you have anybody in your life with whom you can be 100% gut-busting level honest about your sexuality? Most of us don't. If not here, where? The church has not done a good job of creating a culture of spiritual honesty. But here's how Caleb Kaltenbach closes that thought out. And tell me if this doesn't hurt a little bit. If churches are places where people can't be honest, we are creating sanctuaries for fake people. Oh, sucker punch. And that's on me because I'm a pastor. Here's my worry, just being vulnerable. I worry that if I try to lead us there, what if nobody follows? Our track record isn't that great. Like, I want to get there, but can you get there with me? You want to go? You want to get that real? Can you? So if you want to join me in that, here's the or uncomfortable but very necessary question we've got to ask. How has my spiritual pride prevented spiritual honesty in others? Mm. Leads to number three. Acknowledging sexual brokenness keeps us humble. Keeps us humble. John 8 is just like a great, wonderful picture. But do you remember a similar story? Don't you? This is Luke 18. I'm just going to read it to you. There's no slides. This is Luke 18, 9 through 14. Here's this story. Jesus also told another parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Come back to that word in a minute. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. You already know about them. One of them was a tax collector. Dun, dun, dun. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, give tithes on all that I get. God is very impressed with you. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, and he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What's Jesus' conclusion of these two people? I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. Why? And here's Jesus' principle. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now what does that have to do with sexuality? Plenty. Another thought from Julie Slattery. It's a great quote. Here's what she says about spiritual pride in the heart of those in the church. Spiritual pride in Christian leadership may be the greatest barrier to sexual revival in our families, our churches, and our communities. While the world may have its gay pride parades, Christians take just as much pride in having it all figured out. At best, we have pity on the broken while we smugly congratulate ourselves. We will not see the power of Christ bring sexual revival until we change our prayer from thank you God that I'm not like them to oh God forgive me. For the ways I have contributed to the destruction of sexuality, I bear the guilt of so much pain around me. My God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then she caps it off with this. We can never be a part of the solution until we accept that we have been a part of the problem. You think she's right? I do. And I don't even think she's overstating her point. What would it look like 
Let's just imagine for a minute. What would it look like for God to bring revival to North Canton and have it start with our sexuality? You ever wondered that? Curious thing about revival, though. When you pray for revival, and when it's actual revival, you release your right to determine what that revival looks like. Put another way, you ain't going to get revival on your own terms. When God's driving the bus, let me get practical. What if God's desire for our church is that we become a place where those who experience same-sex attraction can learn from Jesus with safety and support, just like those who are overcoming addiction, abuse, divorce, abandonment, all core needs, all met in Jesus alone. What if the person sitting in the aisle with you this morning has a story that they would love to tell, but they don't feel safe to tell it yet because they're right now looking for unseen stones in your hands? Let's get even closer. Could you obey Jesus' call to make disciples If making disciples means meeting with someone, loving someone, having someone over to your house who's walking through gender dysphoria, experiences same-sex attraction, and is deeply hungry for Jesus, if you hesitate, why do you hesitate? If you say, like, no, I could never do that, like, no, not sure I could do that, my next question is, who's being more disobedient to Jesus? If I walk away, what does that mean? If I push away who Jesus invites, am I representing Jesus or am I actually working against Jesus? This from Greg Coles, whose story I shared earlier. If we want to go around applying the term sinner to someone in our lives, the most useful person to start with is ourselves. If we want to go around hating sin, the most useful sin to begin with is the sin we find ourselves most eagerly drawn to. Hmm. That just got more difficult. <laughs> Reason number four. Acknowledging sexual brokenness frees us to be vulnerable. Vulnerability is hard, isn't it? Because I don't know if I can trust you yet. I don't know if you're safe. And I'm not going to talk to you about something as deeply personal about sexuality until I know you are a safe person. Dr. Brene Brown, who's done incredible work on vulnerability, shares four essential attributes to forming a real empathetic connection with another person. And I say these, or offer these, for those of you that are like ready to dive in, and you're like, how do I do it? How do I do it? First, perspective taking. The willingness to see the world through somebody else's eyes. Two, Staying out of judgment. Want to understand somebody's pain before I want to fix their pain. Three, recognizing emotions, which means connecting with something in myself that resonates with what you might be thinking or feeling, and then communicating those feelings back, which, interestingly, empathetic communication never leads with education. Here's what you should do. It leads with encouragement. Man, that sounds so hard. Can we just talk about that more? I'd love to introduce you to Jesus. Now, that sounds great and nice and sweet, but here's what that has to do with the gospel vision for sexuality. Telling others what they should do about their sexuality is usually less effective than telling them what Jesus has done in yours. Vulnerability does first what instruction can do later. And again, like, I'm already feeling the pushback. I know it's here. Well, when do we present truth? Like, when do we get to go, yeah, but, you know... If you're pushing back against the value of your story opposed to the value of truth, I think you're probably slipping into a false dichotomy. 
It isn't this or this. I don't think we ever value story over truth. We value story as a servant of truth. Julie Slattery, again, here talking about what I'll call, she didn't call it this, but I'll call it this, the power of gospel vulnerability. To the extent that we disguise our weakness and justify our sin, we will neither experience nor display God's might and majesty for a watching world. He gives rest to the weary, strength to the weak, healing to the broken, redemption to the sinner. If we admit no weariness, no weakness, no brokenness, and no sin, we say no thank you to God's power, forgiveness, healing, and redemption. Gosh. So here's the catch. It's got to be real. Has Jesus saved you? Has he redeemed your sexuality? Have you given that over to him? Because if not, we got nothing to say. We just go, mm, just go read the statement. Hmm. Are you courageous enough to be vulnerable? When we depersonalize sin, we depersonalize our Savior. Number five, reason number five, acknowledging our sexual brokenness makes us courageous. Something I love about this scene in John 8 is how courageous Jesus is. He stands up to the self-righteous on behalf of the known unrighteous. That's what's happening here. And I'd like to think I would do the same thing. Don't you? Gosh, I want to be like Jesus here. What's that take? To stand up to the self-righteous on behalf of the unrighteous. Quick story. On February 6th, 2020, so pre-pandemic, at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C., Arthur Brooks, professor at the Kennedy School of Government and author of Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from a Culture of Contempt. Another great subtitle. Brooks gave the keynote address, and at a crucial moment in his speech, he made this statement, and I think it's absolutely brilliant. Moral courage, real moral courage, is not standing up to the people with whom you disagree. Like, that's easy to do, really. Moral courage is standing up to the people with whom you agree on behalf of those with whom you disagree. What does he mean? Because it sounds like a little bit of a mental tongue twister. Here's what he means. If you and I want to play a part in redeeming sexuality, the last thing we need is a megaphone and a fluorescent sign saying who God hates. We need to be courageous enough to defend sinners like us. Even if that means standing up to people with whom we naturally agree. Quick little quote, this isn't on the screen. Kyle Eidelman puts it this way. The church should not be known for outrage towards people outside of the community who need grace. We should be outraged by people inside our community who refuse to give grace. So why can't we do it? Why is this so hard? What's our problem? What keeps us from defending fellow sinners? In his address, Arthur Brooks pushed it further. Here's what he says. The real problem is what psychologists call contempt. The conviction of the utter worthlessness of another human being. Eye-rolling, sarcasm, derision, dismissal. Contempt kills marriages. Contempt kills relationships. Contempt kills love. And what I absolutely love about Jesus in John 8 is he refuses to use the categories that most people, or most of us would want to put people into. I think, and this is just me from where I sit, my own life reflecting on how I think about other people naturally, without the Lord, 
I think our unacknowledged contempt has taught us to put people into two categories, people who offend us and people who I like. (laughs) People whose sin kind of makes me sick and people whose sin I can kind of live with. And Jesus and John 8 will have none of that. Like, oh yes, he uses categories. Here are his categories. Broken people who don't know him yet and broken people who do. And his mission is to get as many people from here to here as possible. And he invites you and me to join him in that effort. And the only way that's ever going to happen is if we ask him to free our hearts from contempt from other people who incidentally are exactly like us. Discipleship will never happen if you have contempt in your heart. And killing contempt, by the way, takes a lot of courage Because when you position yourself as a defender of fellow sinners, do you know the first people to turn on you are going to be? It's going to be the self-righteous ones. It's not going to be the broken people who don't know Jesus yet. They're going to wonder what the heck you're doing. But the self-righteous ones are going to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you doing there? Guarantee it. People who claim to know Jesus, but who, in reality, have hidden stones in their hands because they just don't understand grace yet. The idea of grace... Oh, gosh, I want to spend like a half hour here. The idea of grace for others is only offensive to those who don't think they need it for themselves. So are you courageous enough to position yourself as a defender of sinners? Are we courageous enough to ask God to remove contempt from our heart? Are we courageous enough to stand up to the self-righteous on behalf of the unrighteous? What would it look like for Christians to stop fighting with others and start fighting for others. Can you get there? Do you love the gospel that much? Leads to point number six. Number six, acknowledging sexual brokenness drives us to Jesus. And incidentally, this is my favorite one of all six of these. By the time we get to the scene in John 8, along with other scenes like John 4 with the woman at the well, Luke 18, Pharisee and the tax collector. I'm struck by something. Here's how these hit me. I'm just flat out thankful for Jesus. And I know that's like an overly simplistic analysis of this text, but I know some of you have questions around sexuality, some of which we'll get to. I know some of you have a ton of fears, and some of those will be calmed, I hope. I know some of you don't feel safe yet, and that's okay. But all of you, I'm asking for your trust. More than anything, I want you to hear this. I want you to know the gospel that saves sinners. Spurgeon was right. I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. Because when my enemy, the great accuser, picks up stones in the public square of my mind, ready to remind me of my sin, my shame, my unworthiness, I'm so very thankful for texts like Romans 8, Romans 8.1, therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul even says this, this beautiful corrective. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Charles Wesley No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown for Christ my own. You with me? Hmm. 
Paul's question at the end of Romans 8, because some of you are wondering this one this morning. He asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For some of you, that's a very real fear because you feel that there are people who want to do that. Here's his answer. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you buy the idea that we're all broken, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that before I start looking out there, I've got to look in here, the only place you eventually end up to is Jesus. Now what's our part to play? Where do we start? What's this look like? In answer to that question, the deacons are going to come in just a second. And I'm going to serve the Lord's Supper, but I want to continue to Greg's story that I read earlier. Eventually, once my heart rate had slowed, and I was sure there was no danger of getting roped into a prayer group, I wandered back into the worship hall. I found a seat in the middle of the room, where the lights were all turned off and my body cast a long, faint shadow on the empty chairs beside me. I put my head in my hands and prayed without words. Ten or fifteen minutes later, another good friend came and sat down next to me. I just want you to know that I've been praying for you, he said. I played it cool, pretending I had no idea what he was talking about. Oh, I don't know where you're at, he said hesitantly, or, or what you feel comfortable sharing you don't have to share anything at all. I can't imagine how hard it must be to be who you are and do what you do. I just want to let you know that I love you no matter what. As he stammered, a few tears trickled down his cheeks and his body began to shake. He was crying. No, he wasn't crying. He was weeping. His whole body was overthrown by sorrow. He hurt for me, hurt more than I dared to let myself hurt. The evangelical church is a strange place to be a sexual minority. There's so many different attitudes crammed into a tight space. The person who reviles you, the person whose heart breaks for you, the person ready to cast demons out of you, all sitting side by side, sharing the communion cup. We're going to move into a time of communion. This is going to be a little bit different. Um, mechanics are going to feel the same. We we'll do the same thing we do every time we take communion. So deacons, if you guys want to come on forward. You know, Paul offers us a caution. He says, don't do this in an unworthy way. Don't take communion in an unworthy way. We don't come to this table acknowledging how good we're doing. It's not what communion's for. We don't come to this table going, yeah, I need a little bit of a snack because lunch is a little way off. We're not doing that. We come to this table and declare how good a broken Savior is. We serve a broken Savior, and the gospel is that by his stripes we are healed. That's why we remember this today. And so, Lord's Supper is for those of you who claim Christ as your Savior. And if that's you, please take together today. If you don't know Jesus yet, or you got to check in your spirit where you're going, nah, I need to go make something right before I can do this. I don't want to profane the Lord. Just let the plate pass you by. It'll be okay. No one's going to judge you. 
So what we'll do is our deacons are going to pass out the cup and the bread. It's a double cup, and then I'll come back up and we'll take together. I want you just to sit for a few moments in prayer. Let's pray quickly. Lord, we say thank you again for your gospel that saves sinners like all of us. Say thank you for your blood poured out for us. Lord, we love you. Meet with us in these moments. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.